Hello and welcome back to Syria's Lost Generation, a podcast about young people displaced by war. This show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with the humanitarian groups World Vision and the Syrian American Medical Society. I'm your host, Liam Cunningham. In the first two episodes of the show, we spoke with young people in Lebanon, where more than one million Syrian refugees have spread out across the country, many in small, informal tent camps. Lebanon's approach to the crisis has been largely to prevent Syrians from forming big settlements, as Palestinian refugees did decades ago, and to prevent refugees from developing a sense of permanence. In Jordan, meanwhile, the government has taken a somewhat different approach, corralling many Syrians into a pair of large camps in the country's barren northern desert. Zatari, the main camp, holds about 80,000 people. It's the single largest Syrian refugee settlement in the world, and the world's second largest refugee camp. We're joined once again by David Enders, an American journalist who is based in Beirut and covers Syria. David, what can you tell us about the Syrian refugees in Jordan? Well, Liam, the situation for Syrians in Jordan is somewhat better than it is in Lebanon, but still less than ideal. They have better access to services and more rights to employment than they do in Lebanon, but they remain marginalized and their movement is often restricted. Yes, I remember from my visits that refugees who want to leave the camps need a permit, and a permit is usually denied. So if these countries aren't happy to have so many refugees, why do they take them in? Well, at this point, they don't. Uh, Jordan was the first country to close its borders to Syrians, and... Even now, there are more than 10,000 people stuck in the no-man's land between Jordan and Syria. The rest of Syria's neighbors have closed their borders now as well after taking in millions of people in the initial years of the war. As far as the initial refugees, there are lots of reasons people took them in. The first is at the beginning, nobody really expected this to go on as long as it has. And from a humanitarian standpoint, there wasn't much else to do. Local populations were also often sympathetic toward those fleeing or openly supportive of the uprising. Uh, Lots of Lebanese hate the Syrian government. Uh, The Syrian military occupied the country for 30 years and they were were openly supportive of of overthrowing uh, Bashar al-Assad. And um, many of those fleeing were were doing so on foot with what they could carry and, and turning them away would have been heartless, tantamount to a crime. And the border was also quite porous. Lebanon and Syria have a long history. And actually, until the war began, lots of the border was was barely marked. And you could kind of, in some places, just walk back and forth as, as far as you felt like it. And you've crossed these borders yourself, accompanying refugees, haven't you? I have. At one point, I crossed from Syria to Iraq with a group of refugees, and we were stopped at gunpoint by the Iraqi military, and and the soldiers had orders not to let anyone cross. I was just trying to get back to Iraq. I'd been reporting in Syria for a few weeks, and and my goal was simply just to to get out of the country and, and get home, and these people were were trying to leave their homes very, very desperately with just just literally whatever they could carry. And and they were, you know, people who were obviously civilians, elderly people, people who were carrying small children. This was August in Iraq, so the temperature was well over 100 degrees and, and we were 
led to a certain point between the borders by a group of smugglers and then just left to, to navigate on our own. And we walked for, for some hours. And when we were stopped by these soldiers, the refugees just sat down in front of them. And, and one of them said, you can go ahead and shoot us. We're not going back to Syria. It's one of those moments as a journalist where you stop documenting and you become a participant. I was just preoccupied with getting across the border like everyone else was. Uh, eventually, we, we made it across. The soldiers actually waited until their commander had gone to a different part of the border and, and defied their orders and, and let us pass. Yeah, it's extraordinary when you think about it that um, it's, it's ironic, to say the least, that a group of people would be relieved uh, to be arriving um, in Iraq. It's, it's, um, it's saying something. On another occasion, I was with a similar group crossing from Syria to Turkey, and we were, again, led by smugglers. And, and in this case, in the middle of the night through a minefield. And, and it was the, the same thing. Older folks, people carrying small children, and, and just try to imagine that level of desperation to attempt crossing a minefield in the dark, carrying an infant and running toward heavily armed Turkish soldiers. It was a war zone, and there was no guarantee that these soldiers on the other side were necessarily going to react well to a bunch of people running toward them. Yeah, I suppose there's a sense of safety about it. It's, um, it's extraordinary, the tent, the stress on these people, especially when you've got your, your, your children with you. So these countries, they took in refugees in part, you're saying, because they had sympathy for the refugees. But there was a political angle as well, wasn't there? There's a political angle and there's also a potential economic benefit. In the case of Turkey, at least, the government there was publicly supporting the uprising. So it would have been hugely hypocritical not to accept the refugees fleeing the very government Turkey was publicly demonizing. But also some governments siphon off portions of aid meant for refugees. Other governments have effectively weaponized them. Turkey and Lebanon have both at times openly threatened to allow refugees to travel freely to Europe uh, if demands for assistance or political concessions go unmet. But back to Jordan. Liam, you've visited some of the camps there, right? The, the sheer size is, is staggering to me. Um, it is. It's extraordinary. And, and um, bizarrely, when I got to, um, I think one of the camps when I was there was 160,000 that had grown in a really short amount of time. But I remember thinking the size was similar to Galway. There's an annual film festival and all that. So it's, it's, it's one of our larger cities uh, in Ireland, in our small country of Ireland. But this town, this city that had grown in a tiny amount of time, it's like a city appearing in your country from nowhere. It's a most bizarre, strange thing. And I also remember in one of the camps I brought some art materials, colored pencils, uh, crayons for the kids. And they were being used psychiatrically because a lot of these kids come in and they wouldn't speak because of the horrors they had seen. And they gave, they took the art supplies so that these kids could uh, make drawings of what they seen. And it was a first attempt to get them uh, to communicate about the horrors that they saw. That kind of thing um, really plays on, on one's mind. 
That's one of the things we're going to focus on in this episode. In addition to the need for basic necessities, there's also a massive need for psychosocial support. The violence that people have endured is almost unimaginable, and the results in terms of mental health issues are, are evident in the camps. All right. Then let's hear more from Azrak Camp in northern Jordan. Nine-year-old Hassoun loves soccer. My dream is to become a football player. I like to root for Barcelona, and I would like to be like Messi. He's one of tens of thousands of kids growing up among the rows of white trailers and tents that sprawl across a rocky tan tableau in the Zatari and Azraq Syrian refugee camps in Jordan's northern desert. The Zatari camp in Jordan, home to nearly 80,000 Syrians displaced by civil war. I live in house 6, block 4, neighborhood 14. There are seven of us. Four siblings, my parents, and me. If I don't have school, I train for football, and I go play football, and then I come back home and I do my chores, and then I go play football again, but the ground doesn't help us. We hurt ourselves when we fall. I would like to be a famous football player in the Arab world. Hassoun is from Raqqa, in eastern Syria. His family fled in 2015, after the city was taken over by the Islamic State. The center of the battle today, Raqqa, the de facto capital of the Islamic State and the grueling... His father, Omar, says that life in Azraq is manageable, but often difficult. He worries about the opportunities his children will have for their futures. I hope that our country will be back like it was before, and all the people will be back together. And here in the camp, we hope for the kids to have programs to help them succeed in the future. If you see them, how they play with the rocks and their hands are all bloody, your heart will break. Those are the ones who like sports, but the ones who don't, they just sit. So we hope that they create academies and take care of the children and the schools and make the educational choices better. That's the most important thing for a child to succeed. There's a lack of services for children. That shortage extends to mental health services as well. Most of the refugees, young people like Hassoun and adults like his father, experience terrible trauma in Syria. As a result, millions have experienced psychological trauma. Many lost family members. Processing all that trauma without incurring lasting emotional damage requires psychological support. But the provision is lacking. For those who do seek treatment, less than 1% of aid is dedicated to their mental health. Maryam Asalahat is the mental health and psychosocial support coordinator in Jordan for the humanitarian group World Vision International, an NGO that provides aid to Syrians across the region. The refugees she sees deal with everything from war-related trauma to gender-based violence, which is a significant problem in the camps. Actually, when they hear a plane on top of their heads, they do not think about traveling. They, 
they think about war and what happened with them, the bombing, whatever. So they are not having like normal life. They having a traumatic life actually, and we need to stop all this. And I believe that psychosocial interventions it, it helps a lot uh, to 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 manage all this stress and fears, and to keep them going to reach out their hopes and the dreams because some of them they forgot even the word of hope or future she says that the services that are available fall short of meeting the need psychosocial support needs follow up up to one year so to make sure that uh, these children are stable and they can like continue their lives without support if we do so i think we can um, guarantee a much stability in the children and well-being and the children can be more able to focus on their dreams their hopes because they can uh, deal with difficulties they can gain like problem solving but i think with the limited budget we just have the intervention like 5 to 10 sessions maximum we do not have the ability to continue working with them up to one year. Jordan has been a haven for refugees for most of its life as an independent country. First for millions of Palestinians, then for more than a million Iraqis escaping their country's decades of war, and now Syrians. Before she worked with Syrian refugees, Mariam provided support to Iraqis. It takes a toll. I'm working with refugees since 14 years. I can see how much they suffered, a lot of terrible cases, a lot of uh, like sad stories, a lot of fears between children. They, they saw sometimes some of their families dead in front of them. And all of this makes traumas and uh, bad memories in their minds, and they will never forget. All children have the right to, to be safe and to get uh, normal educations, to get uh, health uh, services easily, and then to, to be treated uh, well. Nearly everyone in the camp has a story to tell about trauma. For 18-year-old Mahmoud, it begins in the southern Syrian city of Dara, where he grew up. When fighting broke out there in the initial phase of the war, he and his family crossed to Jordan, but then attempted to return to Syria in 2014. We went back because we used to speak with our cousin, and he said the situation was normal, not like it was before. But when we went back there, there was a lot of shelling happening and a lot of problems, and the cost of living was expensive, and there was no work. We were in a situation that we might eat today, but not tomorrow, so we came back here again. When they attempted to re-enter Jordan, Mahmoud and his family spent 11 days stuck on the border. Mahmoud was sick at the time and was given the wrong medication by a doctor. It caused an infection that led to the amputation of his left leg. Mahmoud says that life in the camp is one more difficulty on top of the trauma that people experienced in Syria. It's really hard, the life in the camps. They stay in the camp 10 years, people don't have patience anymore. The environment is hard and we can't enjoy life. I can't expect anyone staying for 10 years to be in good mental health. 
بعد 11 سنه ممكن ينعدم خالص نسيته صعبه تصير The shortage in services is bound up in part, at least, with donor fatigue. With the war now underway for a decade, and another decade of crisis in Syria looming, humanitarian groups are finding it hard to continue raising awareness and money. Most groups, from the United Nations to NGOs, are focused mainly on providing basic necessities. But as the conflict drags on and many refugees remain trapped in difficult conditions, the need for long-term planning is more significant than ever. COVID-19 and economic crises in the Middle East have further exacerbated the problem. Nina Neposova is the Global Director for Humanitarian Policy and Advocacy at World Vision. Ten years on, we still have a huge amount of need, and that, in fact, uh, the numbers of people in need have increased uh, from last year to this year by, well, a couple of million, really. And so, in essence, um, for us as World Vision, as humanitarians, um, really concerned about the fact that uh, the crisis is continuing and the needs are growing and um, the world is no longer watching. I remember the first five years, it was all over the news. Every day we were hearing about what was going on and the atrocities that were being committed against children, civilians. And unfortunately, now it's barely in the news. We first stopped looking at just uh, one-year plans quite a while back, I'm afraid. And indeed, for us, we are looking at two- to three-year planning, especially for young people for whom, you know, opportunities uh, continue to be quite short. And uh, I think the trajectory for their future and the hopes that they have for themselves in, in terms of getting a great degree and education, in terms of getting a job, are fairly slim. Syria's neighbors, largely Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon, are now home to the majority of the more than six million who have fled the country. Politicians in all three countries have criticized the international community for not doing enough to help. Neposova agrees. The region and the neighboring countries are under a lot of pressure. So the most important thing to recognize is that they have had the highest burden of refugees Frankly speaking, the burden sharing by Western nations have really been subpar if you take it in its whole totality. I think, of course, there are countries in uh, Europe that have done much better than others. I think Germany is a fantastic example. But, um, you know, countries like the United States, for example, for the last, uh, I'd say, at least four or five years have barely done anything at all. And um, in many ways... We can't just expect Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey to be hosting these populations uh, on their own and to feel like they are not getting the adequate support from the international community to do so. For 20-year-old Ali, leaving Jordan for a country with more opportunities would be ideal. His family, his parents and seven siblings, came to Jordan three years ago, when he was 17, from a town near the city of Hama that was on the front line. In the area where we live, from the east, there were the revolutionaries, and from the west, there was the regime, so we were in the middle of all the problems. If the people from the revolution were shelling, we got hit, and if the regime was shelling, we got hit. We were in the area that was damaged the most, although we're not with anyone. We're not with anyone. 
For Ali, returning to Syria now would mean being drafted into the army. After 18 years old, you are obliged to be in the military. And if you want to serve in the military, you will be obliged to do things you don't want to do, like killing civilians. Well, in Jordan, Ali has been taking classes remotely from a university in Switzerland. Currently, I'm planning to continue my education in the university. And if I had an opportunity to go to another country that can provide me with more, then, of course, I would travel there and I will develop my skills. And if I had the opportunity to go back to Syria, I would go there and even if it wasn't my home or my area, it's okay, I would go back. In the future, I want to be a teacher because teachers build civilizations and are the base for everything. 12-year-old Malik also wants to be a teacher. She has participated in gymnastics and karate courses in the camp and teaches both to her sisters and other children. I see myself training my friends how to defend themselves like I learned. Child marriage is a problem in rural Syria, where many of the refugees come from. But the problem has gotten even worse in Jordan, as families who are struggling economically marry daughters off even earlier than before. Why would the parents make their daughters marry at an early age? The girls should get married when they are 18 years old. Malik's family has been in Jordan for eight years. First, we used to live in Mafra. Then, we went to Amman. And after that, we went to Madaba. The place I like the most is Madaba, because it has a lot of green fields, and I love the nature. Outside, there's a lot of things that differ from here. The cars, the places, the views, even the nature and weather is better than here. In the future, I would like to stay here. I don't want to go back to Syria. There's a lot of crisis in Syria until now. Even for the COVID-19 crisis, there's no medicine. Thirteen-year-old Hamza wants to be a dentist like his father. He's also a singer. The song he chose to share with us is by Lebanese singer Remy Bendeli who sang it during the civil war in her country in the 1980s. It begins in Arabic, moves to French, and ends in English. I am a child who wants to play. Why don't you let me? My don't I would like to tell people that are listening to me. If you have a goal, keep trying to get there. And don't let anything stop you. Give us a job, us a On our next episode, we'll take you to Syria's largest city, Aleppo. Meantime, thanks for listening. Syria's Lost Generation is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with World Vision International and the Syrian American Medical Society. Both are non-political groups purely focused on the humanitarian aspects of the crisis. Our producers are Rob Sachs, Alison Meekham and Dan Efron. David Ender's report of the stories you're hearing on the show. Thanks to Laura Gemmel, Josephine El-Haddad, Elias Abuata, John Doutzenberg, Lobna Hassari 
and Angie Maraud for helping bring the series to life. Also thanks to Final Step Studio in Beirut for production help. We'll be back next week with another episode of Syria's Lost Generation. I'm Liam Cunningham. Listener.